Good morning. <clears throat> I'm grateful to be home. I was away for a few weeks. It's always good to be back. The Lord always affirms you in my heart uh, when I'm away. So I look forward to coming home. And this is a big part of home for me. At our church, we uh, view ministry. If you're new here, I just want you to know we view ministry, uh, our scope of ministry in this way. God wants to grow his church, his kingdom, spread his kingdom and mature his kingdom. That's what healthy church is. It wants to grow it uh, here, uh, the word of God among our community and neighbors and friends and inside of our family. But he also wants to take the gospel to new places. We believe that here. And we also believe he wants to mature us, to bring us beyond uh, the rudimentary things of the faith uh, to the deeper things, um, deeper maturity in him. I have what might normally be considered announcements, uh, but they fit inside this model. And so I want to say they're not just announcements. I'm talking to you about the life of the church. And, uh, and they're purposeful. So there's three things I want to mention to you this morning before we turn to the message. One in March, one in April, and one in May. And each one of them tends to a, a different uh, dimension of our ministry. The first coming up this Tuesday night is the soup and chili cook-off, which you might wonder, well, how does that fit? Well, you grow. <laughs> Just kidding. But, but I will say... It is one of the funnest evenings in our church. It's very low-key. It's high on fellowship. And by the way, that is uh, kind of the fabric that a church grows on, is, is fellowshipping and, and being with one another and enjoying one, one another's company. So, uh, I mean, the awards are kind of tangential to the whole evening. At least that's what I say when I don't win. <laughs> when I do win, it's all about the awards. Uh, but either way, if, if I will say this, uh, John Schaff is the gentleman who plays bass right here. He's right over there. If you want to bring a soup or chili, uh, let him know. Is that right? Please, Sooner is better. And, um, we hope to see you there. Great time. If you're new to the fellowship, it's a great place to come and meet and sit at the table and meet, meet new folks. So. I certainly welcome you to that. That's March. In April, on April 18th, which is a Saturday... Our church is hosting a conference on raising children to be uh, sexually healthy children. Now, we're hosting this conference at Wilmington Christian School because we uh, want to make it available to as many people as possible. We're really excited about this. If you are a parent with children, somebody in your house, I think, I want to encourage somebody in your house to attend. I think uh, our culture's gotten in front of us on some of these things. And um, it's been a long time since you rode the bus to school. The bus is different today. There's a lot of electricity on that bus. And uh, I want to I encourage you uh, to mature. You are responsible for your family. You answer to the Lord for your family. And we want to equip you there. Uh, there's other churches coming. It's free. You've made it free. Okay, our church is chosen to make this free to as many people as we can. There's lunch provided. Um, I, I'm not saying that this is what you should do, but I want to plant a seed in, among some of you. You may have a neighbor or a friend who is not all that into church, may not ever come to a Baptist fellowship, maybe they're Catholic, but they do care about their children. And it's amazing how parents entertain the faith when it relates to their children. 
So I just want to say, if, if you're out there and that you, you might want to consider inviting someone to this. It, it might have a way of encouraging them uh, towards the faith in general. So that's April 18th uh, coming up. And then the last thing I'll mention, uh, this is God wants to mature us, right? And the last thing is God wants to spread us. May 3rd, that's Sunday. Sunday, May 3rd, will be a one church service down at the Queen Theater. It's our chance to get together with our, our sister campus. But it's going to be part of the Sunday worship will be the culmination of a larger weekend around mission. So uh, not simply the missions that we do here in our local area. The missions team calls us frontline missions. But also this year we're looking to, uh, to embrace frontier missions as, as part of the fabric of our church. And that whole weekend is going to be oriented around prayer for that and education and learning just how our church participates and how it longs to participate in, in the rest of this year and on. So uh, you can mark that down. That's May 3rd. That's a really important Sunday for us. There. Okay. Now, I guess you can open your Bibles to Exodus 17. I think that's page 51 if you're using uh, the ones in the chairs. I'll say this, even in Korea, you can't help but miss some of the trades Chip Kelly made for the Eagles. Uh, if you're not a football person, you're going to hate the next three minutes. <clears throat> um, I'm more of an Eagles person than a football person. But this is the season. This is draft season, trade season. And this is when you realize, especially if you're not really into football, you realize, wow, there's a lot of positions that people trade for, you know. And, uh, you know, ESPN or the sound bites and the, and the after game reports, they typically hone in on the quarterback or the running back. That's everybody's paying attention to quarterbacks or running backs or a superstar receiver. But there's an awful lot of players on the, on, on the field. If you do fantasy football, typically, uh, somebody tweaked me on this, but I'm going to get it wrong. So I'm going to say what I said last time. You draft about eight players from the offensive line. You draft the kicker, and maybe you can, this is what he told me, maybe you can draft a team's defense just and the defense of the Eagles. But as far as fantasy football is concerned, it carries about eight offensive players in the kicker pretty much. The entire defense and all the special teams, not even recognized in fantasy football hardly. That's a lot of people. That's two-thirds of a football team, defense and special teams. But we kind of hone in on key players. If you ever see a running back take the ball into the end zone, and I am a running game, I believe in the running game. I want big offensive lines, and what you'll see is a running back, he'll go into the end zone, and then he starts his dance, and I want to turn the channel. But then they replay the play, and what you'll see is the running back did a great job, but what you'll often see is the offensive line, these nameless brutes, build a hole for this guy to run through. And that to me is the beauty, is that hole, to build the hole for the, for the running back to go through. We don't know any of those people. You know, unless you're really into a team, you don't know them. They're nameless. When a team wins, who gets the win? I mean, you watch TV and... and Peyton Manning gets the win, or McCoy gets the win. There's a lot of players out there. 
A lot of coaches. There's more than one coach. There's a lot of coaches to make that happen. I, I'm telling you this because this morning we're, we're in a series of Exodus where we're talking about God's provision. It's, a, it's an episode in the book of Exodus where God's showing one example of his provision after another to teach the people of God that he's more than simply a savior. He's also a provider. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to kind of crash into an example of provision that looks like nothing that's gone before it. And the question I just want to float out in front of us is, at the end of the day, who gets the win? Israel's going to go into pitch battle with the Amalekites, and Israel's going to win. But who, who wins the day? That's, that's our question. All right, so let's look at 17, verse 8. Now, we've read 17, 1 through 7. We did it this morning uh, before prayer time. But 17, 8 begins this way. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. <clears throat> now, I, wanna, I want you to appreciate the speed uh, that this narrative kicks in. The then, right there in verse 8, gives almost an immediacy of, or they just complained about water. God just gave them water from the rock. They're in the very same place. They haven't traveled. God gives them water from the rock. Then Amalek comes down. It's as though it, it happens right after the other, one after the other. This would be, sometimes I'll come home from work and my wife will say, how was your day? And I'll give her, we, in my house we call it the legend. She'll say, tell me your legend. And it'll be, well, first of all, it was this, and then it was this, and then it was this, and then it was this. And this is sort of like, you know, and then this happened, and this happened, and then Amalek shows up and, you know, blew my day up. This is how this sort of thing is. It's, that's how it is arranged in the Hebrew. It's, it's as though it went from bad to worse. When it rains, it pours. As though it wasn't bad enough that they had to ask the Lord for water at the rock, then Amalek shows up. Amalek, or the Amalekites, were a, a nomadic, uh, as best we know, we don't know tons about them, but we don't know tons about them because they're destroyed, okay? Um, they were a nomadic raiding people. They, they would kind of like the Vikings, maybe a little bit. Like they made their living roaming around, taking pillaging. They had domesticated the camel. That's their claim to fame. It's a pretty big claim to fame. Which, uh, camel's a very potent animal in war. Horses are scared of camels. They can travel through the desert. In the world before cars, cameling is way faster than walking. So it made them fast and swift in their nomadic raiding excursions. Now, they usually lived in the north of, uh, of Arabia, like towards the northern side of Saudi Arabia, just below Israel. That's where they typically were known to be, both in extant writings that are outside of Scripture and in the writings of Scripture. King Saul and David have to deal with the Amalekites, have to finish the job that was begun here. Um, 
But in this story, we find them way down south in the southern Sinai Peninsula, southern Saudi Arabia, as you would think of it today. That's where they are, which I know this, isn't, this is not central to the story, but it does make me wonder, why were they that far south? And I don't know exactly, but I do want to offer, I want to offer up that the Israelites are a prime target. I mean, word must have got out. God intended for word to get out about what he did. Jericho knew about what God did when the Israelites show up. It was, I mean, Egypt was a superpower of the time. And God just blew them up. So, So I wouldn't be surprised at all that the Amalekites hear that a million plus slaves have left Egypt and are roaming around the southern portion of the Sinai. And, oh, by the way, they looted the Egyptians on the way out. They're loaded with the wealth of the Egyptians. Now, if I was an Amalekite raider with a domesticated camel, that might be enough to bring me to the south of the Sinai Peninsula. That's easy pickings. That's a milk run. This is what it says in Deuteronomy. This is uh, the retelling of the account. I'll just read one verse for you. But It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you. Now just listen to these. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, you did not fear God. So Amalek comes down and he cuts off the tail of the Israelites. The slow, the faint, the weak, the trail, the people who are lagging behind, he cuts them off, he isolates them. You know, we sang today, All the Poor and Powerless, and we sang how God sees them. I mean, that song could have been written right here. God sees his poor and his powerless cut off. That's what's, that's what's happening here. It's Amalek with no fear of God at all. He's as forgetful of the fact that they crossed the Red Sea as the Israelites are. He sees this as an opportunity and he cuts off the weak. Comes in and cuts them away. And this is what happens. Verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out to fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. It's a new character in the Bible here. This is uh, the first mention of Joshua in Scripture. Joshua was a, a young man at this time. He was an assistant of Moses. It says later on in the Word that Moses would meet with the Lord and speak to the Lord as a friend would. And it says then Moses would leave the tabernacle or the tent of meeting and he would go out and he would bring the word to the people. But it says, but Aaron, or excuse me, but Joshua, his assistant, would remain in the tabernacle with the Lord. So Joshua is a close assistant of Moses. And Moses says to him, hey, you go, find, you go choose men. Now the choosing here, is, there's a few stories where God has people choose fighting men from among this choosing is not go choose from the host of fighting men a few people 
so that God might have glory with a few. That's not it, okay? It's not like the Lord is trying, to, or Moses is trying to down-select this warring, this warring militant people to a few so that God might get the glory. It's the exact opposite. The Israelites have never fought battle. Never. They're slaves. They don't, maybe there's a sword or two among them. There's no indication when they loot the Egyptians that they loot weapons from the Egyptians. I'd be hard-pressed to think that the Egyptians said, well, here, take my sword too. Why don't you spear me through while you're at it? I don't think that happened. So they're fighting with their rod and their staff. They are shepherds. So the instruction here is not go to these elite warring soldiers that I've made and select for you a handful from which I'll get glory. That's not it. It's go among the men of of Israel and see if you can find some who will fight. This is an unfair fight from the very beginning. And Moses says, you go do that, Aaron, or Joshua. You go do that. You go find some men who will fight with you. Meanwhile, I'm going to go up the hill, and I'm going to pray the whole time. This is, sometimes it's worth just like meditating in a story until you can be there and imagine how that would feel. Just imagine, this would take courage. Maybe brave. So here's 11. I'm going to read 11 and 12. When Moses held up his hand, excuse me, uh, 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Moses holds up the staff. Israel prevails. He gets tired. He's 80. Imagine watching this. He's sitting on the hill, looking down at the battle being pitched in the field below. And his arms start to fall, and the tide of battle starts to change. I mean, what's the implication? I will say this, just to appreciate the staff. God, I think, uses the staff as a way of separating the power of God from the person of Moses. God will often do this, of put some object in between his power and a person so that we don't associate the power with Moses. We associate the power with God and that Moses happens to have the staff. In fact, in Exodus, oftentimes Aaron would use the staff. It was another way of God saying the power of God is resident, not because of who Moses is, but because of who God is. And so in this picture, right, when the, interceding before the Lord with the staff up, right, the power of God is among the people, but if the staff would fall, the power was not on the side of the Israelites. I mean, the implication is, if we just want to be very clear about it, is the Amalekites were better, they were better warriors. Right? Absent of God, the Amalekites were going to win. They had camels, domesticated camels. They were a warring, they didn't bring women and children with them. They swept down with great speed and cut off the weak ones. This is what they do.
And without God, Israel has no hope. I find it, as I think about the church, and I think about it, this is a church Sunday. This is, scripture is about the church. This, all of who we are, okay? And when I think about the church in light of this, I am brought to my, it brings to my mind this conviction that should always be in front of us, which is we, by ourselves, are not better than the world. They're better than us. They're richer than us. They're cooler than us. They're going to message better than us. They're going to market better than us. They're going to be faster than us because they're not as kind as us. They're going to be more efficient with us than us because they don't care about us. The only thing we have that's better is God. That's the only thing we have. We have a better God than they do. That is the only unique attribute of the church that has any lasting value. That if the church is going to, if, if the church through shame or embarrassment, you know how the world makes us sound like you're just holding up an old wooden stick. Don't you have a new message for us? Like there's times when I feel almost embarrassed to hold it up. I wish it was a titanium rod. <laughs> or, did God really say that? That is so old. And you just want to lower the staff, right? There's times when the church is tempted because the staff is, feels so unattractive to the world. The Lord, our God, feels so unattractive to the world that sometimes you want to set it down and play their game. You will not, we will not win. We, the only thing we have that's better is a better God. And on the field of battle in this world, that is the only thing that will give us victory. And so he has to hold it up. And this is what it says in 12 and 13. Moses is, but Moses' hands grew weary so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. It's a long battle. Till the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now this is where I, I this is where I want to say, who gets the win, right? I mean, I know you're in church, so the answer is God. But if you were there, a lot of people were doing stuff here. Israelites were fighting with rods and staves and pitchforks and clubs and sticks off the ground and rocks. Nameless people who we will never find record of anywhere else in the scriptures were striving that day through blood and sweat and tears, inhaling dust, running out of water, fighting in the heat, doing all of this against Amalek. This is, this is unique so far in the provision of God. Thus far in the story of God as a provider, we've, we've seen a God who when they cry out, when they grumble to Moses and Moses cries out to God, God gives them something. Bitter water. Oh, and then Moses, Lord help us. 
Here, okay, here's sweet water. Running out of food, grumble, grumble. Oh, Lord, we're running out of food. Here's some food. I'm not saying that stepping out of your tent and picking up manna is nothing. But I am saying that stepping out of your tent and picking up manna is nothing when compared to going into battle with, against a superior foe. This is a moment. Of, so obviously God gets the credit for the victory, right? That's the whole image of when God's staff is raised up, God's power, his sovereign power of provision brings victory to his people. That's clearly happening. But what's powerfully present here is the people of God are laboring Not one of them, many of them. Even Moses is not sufficient here. You know, the 18th chapter, which was preached out of order, it was preached a few weeks ago by Champ, but that is an entire chapter on the insufficiency of Moses, of God God saying, look, my provision is my holy word, not my holy man. My provision is my holy word. Moses, you find men to whom you can impart my holy word, and that is how my people will be sustained. That's the 18th chapter. But here you see hints of it right here in the 17th chapter with the fact that Moses' own strength is insufficient. There needs to be other people to come beside him. And so on the mountain you have not one person interceding, but many, several people interceding to the Lord for the rich. In the field you don't have Joshua. You have Joshua and many men fighting. I think this is one of the best things about the church. That he uses us. He wields us. God wields his people. We are his instrument of provision. I think that's beautiful. That is so much better than stepping out of your tent and picking up manna walking. The fact that God would use us, that God uses us to be the provision for others. There's people in the tribe that have been cut off, right? They're crying out in their own way. And what does God do? God uses them, his people, to go get his people. How often in your life, in your Christian life, if you've been a Christian for any registered period of time, how often have you found that your prayer to God for help was answered by another believer? That God's provision was found in a brother or sister in Christ. That is how he works. And we should find joy in it. There's so much more joy and purpose in being used and being part of the instrument of God's mercy and power than simply stepping out of your tent and picking up manna. I mean, that is probably cool the first day. Religion is not a routine. It's a life with God. I love to see, there seems to be a role. You you can even imagine there's roles that aren't even mentioned here. And after the battle, all the people who have to help care for the wounded but you see there's these intercessors on the hill. You see there's these people fighting in the field. There's people in need. This is the body of Christ. It's so New Testament. 
The body of Christ is made of many parts. When one part suffers, the whole body suffers. This is this text. Let's look at 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Then Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now this is sort of a tough, if, if, uh, <clears throat> if you have a hard time getting your mind around uh, God being a man of war or the way God goes to battle, th- these are tough statements. I-, I will say that's probably a product of an overly pacified culture uh, that's insulated from reality. Um, but I, it is worth noting, God didn't go seek the Amalekites out. The Amalekites came down because they had no fear of God and they cut off the poor and powerless. And I think the walk away of this is God sees and cares for his people. God cares for his people. All of them. Not the ones in the front of the pack, all of them. The lost and the lonely and the least and the poor and the powerless, God sees them. He gave his promise to bring them into the promised land was as true for them as it was for Moses out front. It's for all of them. And so for Amalek to come in, no one will cut off the people of God. That's, that's here. And, and the Lord is marking it. The Lord's marking it for all the nations around to say, do not touch my children. Now, I think the tendency, uh, at least I feel like I need to speak to this tendency because I don't want this to happen. The tendency that I, w- I want to discourage is to translate this across space and time to say, therefore, God is going to destroy ISIS. <sighs> because ISIS killed Christians. You know, one, I think we should grieve for ISIS. They, man, they have must, those, what must a person have endured to have that kind of hate? That should grieve us. And I will say this, um, maybe it's a spiritual pet peeve, but I'm less bothered by ISIS when they kill Christians because I know where Christians are going. I'm bothered by ISIS when they kill Muslims. For they have not heard of Christ. We have had victory. And this, converse, this story, right, this story which really happened, this record of Scripture, that if it's going to be truly elevated and truly transported across space and time, it doesn't land to application on ISIS. It lands to application of what Christ has done for us. That the true enemy that would cut us off from God is Satan. That's what, that's what God is really concerned about. That's the true enemy. That's the true enemy that God is waging war from generation to generation that God will not stop until Satan and death has been blotted out from our memory. That's, that's the greater truth here. Mo, Christ is a greater Moses. 
Satan is a more dastardly Amalek. I even think, if you think of the imagery, the visual imagery of this story, I have to wonder if the Lord was grinning, thinking one day people will see it. I mean, imagine you're down, you're fighting in the field, it's hot and dusty, and you look up on the hill, what would you see with your eyes? But a man holding a staff like this. I mean, like that. I mean, I am... I love that. I love the fact that Christ did stand on a hill. You know, I think Christ did not have helpers. He didn't have an Aaron and an Hur. He died alone. So he nailed his hands so that they would not fall. He nailed his feet so that he would not sit. And he interceded for us in the battle. All day he did that. All day he interceded on our behalf. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And when the battle was over, he was laid down. It's finished. This is the way God's provision for us is translated. All the lost and lonely, all the poor and powerless, God sees them all and he will not allow the enemy to cut them off. And he will use you to go rescue them. Think of that. How often have we thought, just think for a second, you want application? I want you to think right now of people in the fellowship or in your circle of friendship who have, by the enemy, been cut off or isolated or pushed away from the body of Christ. It's one thing to pray, Lord, rescue them. It's another thing to realize that you may be the instrument of mercy for them. We are the instrument of God's provision for ourselves. We're the body of Christ. I want to pray. I want to take a second to pray and then we'll end with a song. I want, so if you'll bow your heads. This is a message about the people of God. And we are, Lord, we are the people of God. And so, first of all, I just want to give space for you to consider, is there, is there someone who's cut off? Is there someone who is in need and belongs to us? Lord, help us to know when you send us into battle to save. Lord, we confess right now that that work never is attractive. It is hard. It's dusty. It's tiresome. It's complicated. It's risky. And we would prefer that you would just do it. Could we just come out of the tent tomorrow and you have fixed everything? 
but we know that you have given us the gift of being your instrument, Lord. That you would lay your hands on us and use us. It's such a gift. Lord, so we thank you for that. We thank you. We, if to the degree that we can, we divorce the discouragement of the work from the joy of the gift that you would actually use us to do your work. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would begin to see beauty in that joy and pride. That for no good reason of our own, you selected us. So, Lord, give us a heart. Give us a heart and eyes to see those who have been cut off in the rear. To see people in need. And to trust that Christ is our great intercessor. That he has already. He has already. If we were to but labor in your will, we would gain victory. We know that, Lord, because he did not let his hands fall until it was finished. Lord, he was pure and righteous, and through him your sovereign power of provision and care has come to all your children. So, Lord, use us. Convict us, Lord. Put us on the battlefield. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.